0: Here's a riddle from my childhood. A father and son are in a horrible car crash that kills the dad. The son is rushed to the hospital. Just as he's about to go under the knife, the surgeon says, I can't operate. That boy is my son. How can that be? I didn't get it right as a kid, and according to a 2014 study by Boston University professor Deborah Bell, um, most people don't. Only about 15% of um BU undergraduates in psychology and children in a Brookline summer camp came up with the possibility that the surgeon could be the boy's mother. I'm not sure if the numbers would be much higher if the study were redone today because the default for many people is that people in positions of authority, power, expertise and competence are men, specifically white men, specifically heterosexual white men. In a lot of positions of power and authority in our society, the per, the normal person, the person we think of as occupying that position, is a white male, and so there has been arisen a whole initiative, a whole movement in organizations around the company and around the country, and indeed around the world, to broaden the the leadership, broaden the ranks. And the, one of the names for this is DEI: Diversity, Equity. And inclusion. And this has come under attack recently from a lot of right wing media for being equivalent to irresponsible wokeness. We're just putting anyone in these positions and they're not qualified and it's just tokenism. They're just being chosen because they're women or they're black or they're queer and everyone's suffering because of it. For example, Boeing, the plane, the the door flew off in, in mid flight. It's because they were so obsessed with uh, gender equity and, and hiring minorities that they just didn't hire the right people with the right skills. And because they were so focused on that rather than their core mission of making airplanes that, you know, they've now become a dangerous company and no one wants to fly in their planes. So I wondered if any of this was true. Um, So I reached out to a friend and someone who has taught me a lot over the years, Sally Helgeson. She's the author of many books about the workplace, including Rising Together, How Women Rise, and the Web of Inclusion. And in fact, she was the first person to use the word inclusion in an organizational setting. And this was way back, about 30 years ago, in the 90s. So I asked her, like, what's the deal with DEI, diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion in the corporate setting? Is it hurting companies? Is it just like, well, we feel guilty or we want to, you know, have good PR or we're not even thinking about it, but we're just doing it because everybody else is doing it? Or is there a business case to be made for increasing diversity and empowering people who don't look like me? So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. It's hard-hitting, provocative. Sally brings facts, not just uh, opinions. And she tells an amazing story of what happened at Boeing, of what happened at GE and other companies that, have, that are long past their heyday, and their decline is being blamed on wokeness. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, Sally Helgeson, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank
1: you Howie. It's wonderful to be with you this morning.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about uh, DEI, which I think is <laughs> D- D- diversity, equity and inclusion, right? And those are cap- capital letters.
1: Exactly. I've been writing about it recently because there's been such a sort of political backlash to the efforts in organizations uh, of all kinds, you know, whether corporate, university, association. Uh, there's been a real backlash to the efforts that, uh, companies have made to extend their, uh, leadership, uh, to, uh, open the leadership and open the development of all kinds of people, a wide variety of people. And there's some political opportunism in trying to blame every single problem that exists on, uh, diversity and inclusion. And, uh, I've just been exploring why this is this is such a wrong-headed approach.
0: Yeah, so let's let's begin folks who haven't uh, met you yet. Can you kind of just in- introduce yourself so you can kind of ground the topic in your own experience and expertise?
1: Of course, Sally. Uh, I'm Sally Helgeson, and I have been working with writing about and researching and speaking about and doing workshops on. Both women's leadership and inclusive leadership for 35 years now and uh, written eight books in the field. The book I wrote, The Web of Inclusion, A New Architecture for Building Great Organizations in 1995 was the first, the first time the language of inclusion had been used uh, in the workplace. And it was not at that time at all related to diversity because Diversity and inclusion didn't exist as a thing, but I was just advocating for more inclusive practices that would help organizations, uh, engage and retain a broader spectrum of people and really use their talents, uh, to the utmost. So these, these topics, women's leadership and inclusive leadership have been really my passion for decades. So, uh, so this, this, this has to do with the, The focus that I've had in my newsletters since the start of the year on the value of DEI, why it's not going away, although the name and how we talk about it may change.
0: Mm, So I'm curious when you started writing about it, as you said, it wasn't even a thing like you had to lend it words so that it, you know, became something that people could talk about. Um, Now, you know, DEI had become a, a sort of a, you know, a department in, or an initiative in HR. It then became, um, you know, a punching bag of, of certain political and cultural aspects. How, I'm just curious how your work has been affected by the kind of, the, the concept of DEI escaping into the wild. Where you can't you can't control the, the narrative anymore. Has it has it changed what you do in organizations in any way? It has not
1: changed what I do in organizations. And that's one of the points that I I'm trying to make. You know, this whole idea that include uh, diversity and inclusion is inherently just a politically correct program is ridiculous. Diversity is not a goal. Diversity is the nature of of the workforce, it's the nature of the talent pool that global organizations have to work with. And inclusion is a way to lead and manage effectively a diverse workforce. So D&I has been really just an approach to address an issue in organizations, which is the increasing diversity. And I'm talking about uh, certainly race, culture, gender, sexual identification, age. We have such a huge age span now uh, in the workplace and as well as values and experience. So how do you, how do you uh, lead that effectively? How do you develop talent given that reality? Mm. That's a very different question than is being addressed by political opportunists who are basically saying, oh, this is wokeism and et cetera, et cetera. And this is responsible for every bad thing that's happening, whether it's, you know, airline wheels coming off or, uh, you know, or, or, or technological glitches. Let's look at DNI as the problem. We saw it really blow up at the beginning of the year with the, with the firing of of seeing, you know, the presidents of Harvard and Penn State, and now they're going after the president of uh, MIT.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So um, one of the, so there's there's lots of, you know, sort of noise and firecrackers about it, but I'm also, I try to read um, works by sort of thoughtful conservatives and, and, um, you know, people of color who, who are, you know, who are not sort of, you know, sort of lockstep in with my sort of, you know, knee jerk liberal take on things. Um, and one, one of them is, um, John McWhorter, who, who, um, is a, you know, Columbia University linguistics professor and a columnist for the New York Times. And he had a column right after, uh, Claudine Gay, the president, the ex-president of Harvard resigned, um, in which he said, you know, it's, it's, it's not racism. And he said, but is it, is it racism to question why she was chosen with a relatively um you know s- skinny resume of scholarship compared to other people it, 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 that in in a past era that might have been you know referred to as tokenism which he would you know he like is is as bad or worse um yeah. as, you know and and so you know one one of the things one of the points he made in this in this opinion piece is that d capital d e i has an ideology behind it that 's not the same as wanting those things diversity equity, and inclusion so i 'm wondering if there's if if you agree that there's a place to parse the sort of a philosophical underpinnings of capital d capital e capital I and the way it 's been presented in organizations and the goals or do they have to go together
1: yeah, and you know mcWhorter is someone. I read, and I also like you, read thoughtful conservatives, not knee jerk you know uh, right wingers, but thoughtful conservatives. I think it's a very important part of of the reading I do as well, obviously as that of people of color. but i I think that looking, I do think that organizations, universities, et cetera, they are focused on Having, being well led, of course, but I think they're also focused to some degree on the perception that they're, you know, developing, developing intellectual content that is feeding a different perspective. And I think Harvard has been in the forefront of that. I'm not going to weigh in on the merits of Claudine Gray or not. I don't know enough about it. I read McWhorter's piece, but I've also read, uh, pieces fiercely defending, uh, Harvard's choice there. So, but I think that, you know, one of the things that gets lost in the conversations about it that are political is the legitimate desire organizations have to diversify at the top, not just in the mid-ranks. And and that, you know, is probably one of the things that was happening there. And it's a legitimate uh desire to pursue. Mm-hmm. Harvard has had some done some extraordinary scholarship like this 1619 project. And, you know, some of the people involved in it may have been very ideological, but that's a separate kind of issue. And, um, you know, those presidents were being targeted because they. Did a pretty poor job of representing what they were trying to do in the congressional hearings. They walked into mm-hmm. a trap um, and there are all kinds of reasons I think that that happened, especially having to do with the how the law firm that was representing them uh, prepped them for that uh, for that particular conversation. But what happened was these activists went after them as typical DEI. Let's look at, uh, the president, uh, McGill of, uh, University of Pennsylvania, who was the first one to get fired. It was like, she's only there because she's a woman. What, what, you know, mm-hmm. the MIT, uh, Sally Kornbluth, but she's only there because she's a woman, you know, if they, so there is this assumed uber competence among white males doesn't mean there haven't been some extraordinary white male leaders. Of course there have. But there have also been some pretty poor ones uh in organizations. But it's never identified that way. It's like, oh, well, you know, I kind of screwed up or, you know, yeah, I took the company on the wrong path with that decision to pursue whatever it was. But there's a, a lack of skepticism hmm. uh, about that inherently.
0: Well, you have a great sentence in today's Substack. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'll um, say the second half of which is companies, and I think you're, you're sort of quoting or, or, or citing someone. Uh, companies routinely conflate overconfidence with competence in white males, especially those in leadership positions. And you mentioned, you know, Jack Welch, who is revered, lionized as, mm. as the, you know, the, the CEO of the century practically from, you know, last last century, Um, the, the, uh, the parade, the clown car of Boeing executives who followed sort of Alan Mulally uh, (laughs) and did not do a good job. And, you know, example after example um, yeah, right? Like there, that's where there should be skepticism. Like, Oh, you're a white guy. Prove to us that you didn't just get in through the old boys network.
1: Well, I agree with that strongly. And, um, you know, I mean, Jack Welch, he did what he did. He turned, sort of moved GE from being a great manufacturing uh, company to being a company that was dependent upon their finance branch. It was evaluated in the stock market as if it were a financial services firm during his tenure. That was part of what he was able to bring off and then it blew up on his successors and the it's it's, it's a tragic watching that company sort of be hollowed out and trying to recoup now but it, you know it's not it's it just assumed that you know it's never uh, these guys get so much of the benefit of the doubt from people and the minute a woman or a person of color comes into a position of leadership, the first mistake is, well, they must have gotten that position because they were. It's never, you know, that uh, that these, as you say, this clown car of leaders that um, that Boeing had uh, starting in 1996 uh, uh, with Phil Condit, that these leaders were. You know, where they were because of the support they have or because basically they were, you know, part of the old boys network as, as you put it and that they had benefited from that. So it's, it's not really a smart way to, to evaluate leaders, you know, through this lens of race even you know if it's white guys it's like these guys benefited from the old boys network that that quote you read about um the you know the companies that organizations are particularly poor at spotting uh incompetence among white males is really from Tommaso uh tomorrow pre music tomorrow i always uh, get those backwards pre music Chamorro who is at Columbia and also at um, London School of Economics and he has done these very very large studies and and he feels that that's one of the biggest problems that companies have that they're not good at spotting incompetence uh, in in white men and that why is that and that that penalizes not just women and people of color, but white men who are competent because Mm. companies are often dazzled by overconfidence, which is a huge problem. And a lot of the mistakes, if you look at a Boeing, um, if you look at HP, you know, a lot of the mistakes that were made were mistakes that were made through overconfidence Uh, That people had in their own skills and their own brilliance and their own ability, um, you know, to sell ideas that had that were essentially problematic.
0: Mm. So I kind of go drop underneath the DEI conversation for a second just to respond. So when you say that these these organizations are bad at spotting incompetence in white men, one of the things I hear is that they're bad at spotting incompetence. And right. So like it's not as clear. Competence in leadership is not as clear as say competence in like, you know, the assembly line, right? If the thing, if the, if the engine comes to the end of the assembly line and the, the bolt falls off, then you can say, you know, someone screwed up. But, but so like, do we, ha- do we have the leadership, the technology to assess leadership in any meaningful way or, or is, is it because there's, it's so amorphous? That all this, you know, misattribution comes in.
1: Well, that's a really interesting question, and and it does, yeah, exactly. If you make a mistake on assembly line, it shows up. Uh, but at a leadership level, you're dealing it, you know, to some degree, it's more amorphous, which is why really great leaders, people like Alan Mulally, will make it very ta- tangible. I do want to say one thing. This idea is that they are particularly poor at spotting incompetence in overconfident white men. That's what uh, uh, uh Music Tomorrow's research showed. Mm. And, and and there are fewer women or people of color, naturally, who are going to be overconfident because they haven't had that kind of support and that kind of endless affirmation of you oh you 're wonderful oh you 're brilliant etc let 's put you on the cover of like Jack Welch of yeah. Fortune magazine every other week and talk about you know the company as if it is you, so that kind of over overconfidence is more characteristic of people you know who've, who've come up with mm-hmm. the kind of support of the old boys network so that 's really where where the problem is is that overconfidence. Will tend to override um, more tangible evidence
0: of of issues well okay. um, I want to push push back on that a little bit okay. like w- when I, when I was in school and I took a math test like if I got a seventy two my confidence made no difference it's, It seems like yeah the, there's a differential effect on different groups of people, but the underlying th- fact is like like are they good at Do we understand how to evaluate leaders? Is it just about, you know, the stock price in two years or is there a rubric? Like, you know, you and I belong to a networking group that kind of has a basic understanding of what leadership is, you know, led led by the writing of Marshall Goldsmith and lots of others around, you know, being vulnerable, admitting your mistakes, inclusive, empowering others like do is like, what's, what's the the bottom line sort of research on like, are there, do we know, are there behaviors that routinely translate into great leadership or good leadership or competent leadership? Or is, is this the, you know, this, the overconfidence problem, a symptom of, we just, we have no idea what makes a good leader.
1: You know, I think that, 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 that's a really interesting question. I know that I'm familiar with this, um, a human flourishing project at Harvard that's going on right now which is trying to identify what primary factors uh create a culture in which people are most likely to flourish that is really realize their talents feel that their their work is satisfying and rewarding and sustainable so that's that's an idea they're they're looking at that so they can then assess, you know, how that happens in a team, how that happens in a unit, a division, and in an organization. And it usually comes down to the leader. Uh, it, it just does. If a team has a leader who is capable of listening, of demonstrating, of not disrespecting people, of treating people well, of being inclusive. Then you 're more likely to have a team that flourishes, but it's not mm-hmm. always those people who are on track uh, for leadership because there are a lot of other concerns at the leadership level. But I think that where the the assessment of leaders often goes astray is this presumption that someone is a visionary or a big picture thinker, which puts a Mm -hmm. lot of pressure on an individual to sort of come up with things that are original and arresting and that may not necessarily be in the long-term interest of the organization. And that's, you know, I've, I've heard that for years, this idea of being a visionary and often when you, I mean, I studied, the, I followed the auto industry. I won't say I studied it, but I followed the, the auto industry in the United States for, for many decades. And during its period of real struggles, that's what they were always looking for. They were looking for, you know, the Roger Smith at uh at General Motors who was the guy who you know his vision was robots and you know moving to 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 robotize basically everything uh the teams how how teams were led etc so that was considered you know a big picture idea so that kind of thing i think there's a real map and an overlap there with overconfidence mm-hmm. and i and i don't think that that Leaders are necessarily assessed based upon the actual attributes that develop an organization to be a place where uh, uh, where people can in general flourish um, i i don't think hmm. i haven 't seen that you know and a company'll have a, a a fantastic leader in that mo- mode like Alan Mulally at Ford. And then turn around after that and look for leaders who, you know, weren't were were very different in their philosophy and approach, but who had a big picture, a vision. Now they're finally, you know, back to having someone more in the Allen mode at Ford. But Mm. that that I find that really fascinating.
0: Mm. God, so so many. Tangents I want to go on like you've you've just like, you know, like thrown steroids on my ADHD. I want to have like 12 separate (laughs) divergent conversations at the same time right now. Um,
1: Yeah, it's that that big picture, you know, and this is where organizations Fall into trouble. I call it, you know, the, the thermidor approach. In the French Revolution, they called July thermidor and they began renaming all the months. So the idea was it was going to be a whole new day. Everything was going to be different. And you find that routinely in organizations. This guy's putting a stamp on it. This leader is, you know, changing the whole mm. direction of the organization. I think that not, that non-organic approach to organizational development is often highly problematic. Um, and, and that's sort of at the root of what we're talking about.
0: When you describe it that way, I just have a vision of all the dogs here, like all the male dogs lifting their legs.
1: You know, it's sort of like you, you want to create a big table where people can come and feel included. But when you have these revolutionary kind of like all new day approaches, you're basically flipping the table. You're flipping the people who are involved, but you have, you know, a similar approach. And it, it mm. doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't make for a, an inclusive or reliable environment.
0: Mm. So what, one of the threads I wanted to follow was um, just it, it, it's hard to agree upon a definition of success. Uh, now that's not true from a purely capitalist frame, right? right? Where we're talking about return on investment to, to, to shareholders. But, you know, I was reading yesterday about Patagonia that mm-hmm. restructured, um, that, you know, every cent of their profits now is going to a fund that's now, you know, being funneled towards, um, climate positive activity. Um, the, the, um, the founder and CEO for a long time, Yves Chenard, um, purposely didn't try to make as much money as possible. He sort of limited profits, um, you know, in a, in a capitalist world, like that, that's less successful than had he, you know, gone and done a North Face and had, you know, triple or quadruple the, the revenue and profits. Um, but, you know, so I, if we're talking about great leadership, we have to be talking at some point about something tethered to, to reality. What are, what are the things that, we're, that increasingly we should be looking at in terms of, is this organization a success besides everybody's getting rich?
1: Well, sustainability. I mean, that's the key here. That's what we're really talking about. When we talk about what happened at a company like GE or what threatened to happen, in the United States uh, with our three, you know, big three automakers, these were not sustainable business models. And when you look at, you know, you, you're maximizing shareholder value. You're making a big splash in the stock market, but are you hollowing out your organization for where they will be in, you know, 10 years from now, in those cases, yes, that was happening. So I think the key here. Is really is this a sustainable approach? Is this sustainable development, sustainable growth? Uh, Patagonia is uh, describing or or defining uh, sustainability in terms of the sustainability of our planet and our you know ability to address those challenges. But I think mm-hmm. that that it you know the the short-term focus the quarterly focus of the, you know the financialized model makes it very hard inherently hard to build a sustainable Model and you see it, you know, with hedge funds. I mean, this is, you know, the biggest hedge fund, the most successful hedge fund. And then three years later, you know, it's in bankruptcy, and you know, everybody's lost their job, and and the and the founder, the the guy who founded it, is out and you know trying to raise more venture capital. That's not a sustainable model, and I I don't think it has. I think that's become clear, but we, we're we not really looking at it and we're not understanding how, what an anathema to, that, that capitalism is not really, should not be dependent upon these very short-term goals and satisfying the stock market. And that, that's where we have, one of the things we have to look at. We have to look at the fact that Companies are often forced to make decisions that are not in the, their own best interest and that the leaders who are smart recognize are not in their own best interest mm. in order to, in order to increase, you know, quarterly returns. So I think that's a big problem and it's not an inherently capitalistic problem capital capitalistic how capitalism how that that still is a model that that works it's just that that financialism and that uh, that idea that really originated with Milton Friedman that you know providing shareholder value is the only purpose of an organization having nothing to do with its products, its services, its people, etc. Uh, that, that is the essence of short-termism.
0: Yeah. So Milton Friedman started reading Adam Smith and then got bored before he got <laughs> to the chapters on moral sentiment.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you know, it was an idea and it was fine, but, um, the way people got, uh, latched onto it as kind of a gospel and a rationale, uh, really, I think, harmed, harmed companies, particularly in the United States, yeah. where we don't have a counterbalance. You know, in, in a co- country like Germany, where you have a significant representation of employees and even unionized employees on the boards, then you have other considerations. So you, you get a more inherently long-term approach. Here, we've mm. kind of gone with the Friedman thing. And I think that one of the things we're, we're in the middle of now is a, is a little bit of a, a backlash. Or are we thinking of that? And I'm seeing that as you talk about um, with with the thoughtful
0: conservative writers who are out there. Mm. Yeah. So the, another, another thing I wanted to reflect back is when you're describing the qualities of leaders who can create sustainable, inclusive, successful places to work, it reminds me a lot of women. <laughs> yeah. More, more so than men. And I'm, I'm recalling an essay I, I read. I was, um, one of my first jobs out of school. I was a teacher in the, in the Friends world, Quaker education. Huh. And I think it might have been Pe- a Peggy McIntosh essay, but I looked for it and I couldn't find it, so I might be just misremembering. But it was basically about teaching history and how we, we teach history in a way that ignores things like women doing dishes. Yeah. Right? Like the, the the warp and woof of everyday life mm-hmm. is somehow not... Considered important, but it is the visionary. It's the one who's going to go break things, the person who's going to, you know, put satellites up and and send people to Mars. Um, And you know, there's there's certainly a place for that, but it's it ignores the fact that that the basis of sustainability. You know, it's it's almost like you know, I've I've been a vegan for a long time, so so in that world. Like the hunters get all the glory, but the only reason they get to hunt is because the gatherers are keeping everybody fed. So they can go and do <laughs> this, this risky thing, like go out and chase a big beast and come back and beat their chests and have a ceremony when chances are they're going to fail. But they know there's food at home because the lady's got the tubers.
1: <laughs> that is so right. You're so right. Howie, it's really fascinating uh, the extent to which that's happened. And this is something I, I really do have some information on. You know, it's always fascinated me that um, women do uh, have, have over the last uh, 15 years, started businesses at a higher rate than men, but they're, they're much smaller businesses and they are not capitalized at anywhere near uh, the degree that, the uh, businesses then start are capitalized, and this is in part because the banks and the VCs are not as, um, you know, they they just have a harder time with women, and there've been studies done and lots of prep done for women to to make the pitch for VCs, but what is what I've seen is that women often start businesses not because they want to assume a lot of debt and grow fast, break things, as you say, but grow fast and then sell it. They start a business because that's where they want to work. And they want to provide a good place to work for people that they've worked with, often other women who they feel aren't getting recognition. So it's a completely different... Um, business model. Margaret Heffernan wrote a brilliant book about it called How She Does It about women who start their businesses and what their goals are and what motivates them. And it's a much more sustainable idea of motivation. I want to start something that I'm going to enjoy working in and that the people I hire are going to enjoy working in. This is a more sustainable model Hmm. than how much capital can I get to grow the company as fast as I can at with the idea of selling it? And the women don't necessarily want to sell it. So what Margaret found was a lot of these women said, I don't want to assume a lot of debt because then I cannot run the company in the way that I want to run it that fulfills the reason I've started it in the first place. So I thought that was really fascinating, and it speaks exactly to your point about that idea of building sustainable community and why and how that is so different than building uh, a a company that that grows very fast and can be sold and that dazzles the market and, you know, gets listed as quickly as possible, et cetera.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I was just reading this morning um a book called The Thought Leader's Practice. Yeah. Um, right? and one of the things you say, like, there's a difference between a practice like you and I have and a business, but we are told to build it like a business. And this is like one of the the key distinctions is do you want freedom or fulfillment? Yeah. Right? If you want the bit like, okay, I'll work hard, I'll put up with stuff, but in three years or 10 years, I'll sell and I'll be a you know, multimillionaire and I can live on a beach and sip drinks with umbrellas versus, you, you know, Sally Helgeson Inc. wants to keep, Sally Helgeson wants to keep doing what she's doing because it has an intrinsic inherent value and meaning and, and joy and purpose as opposed to, you know, I'm going to cash out. And so if so if you're not going to cash out, then none of your investors is going to cash out either. And so why would they invest?
1: You know, that's a a wonderful point. I remember a group that I was part of that Marshall actually started uh, of thought leaders, uh, people who were in the field of leadership, who, who did research, who wrote books, et cetera. And there were a lot of very interesting people in it. And in the 90s, everybody was trying to figure out a way to cash out, and how were they going to do that, and who were they going to sell their intellectual property to? And most of those efforts actually just kind of blew up. Either they happened and they were very unsatisfying to the person, the person ended up getting ripped off, even using losing the capacity or the ability to use their own name in their businesses going forward, et cetera. It was not a successful thing. And it you know, I'd always been allergic to the idea of starting a business because um, I had seen how that looked. And I thought I, this is not what I want. I don't want to employ a whole bunch of people. I don't want to be empl- I don't want to be responsible for five or 10 or 50 people's health insurance. And, you know, keeping that idea of practice. I love that. And I think that's been lost, you know, in the medical field. It used to be very much a practice. And because Mm -hmm. of, not because of the doctors, but just because the way the, you know, insurance companies are run, it's become a business.
0: So another thing that I wrote down to to talk to you about is um, this idea of like the visionary leader. It's okay if they like crash and burn because they're just going to get more money to do it again. And and but very often you know not very often but occasionally they'll succeed on some yeah. so you know some outlandish and it reminds me of I don't know if you've read Annie Duke's book Thinking in Bets no um, it's a great book she's um, she was a, I think a professor of something who who quit to become a, a world champion poker player
1: oh I've heard and, about her Thinking in Bets oh that's interesting okay yeah.
0: And her point is you you don't judge a decision. And she said every decision is a bet, Mm -hmm. essentially. And it's it's is because, because you know, just as in poker, you don't know what the other you don't know. You don't have all the information. So you're making your, you know, a decision. You're taking an action based on incomplete information, playing the odds typically and whatever, whatever information you can gather. So it's like you can you don't judge the quality of the decision by the outcome. You judge it on the merits of what was known at the time, and so when I see, you know, go back to these very, very overconfident, w- typically white males, um, some of you know, some of whom get it right. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get it right next time. In fact, it, it, it probably means that they're even more overconfident, less willing to look at disconfirmatory um, data or trends. And, you know, they become more, the more successful they become, the more dangerous in a way.
1: I think we're seeing that a lot in the Silicon Valley thing, um, because there's been so much emphasis on, you know, the genius. And there are geniuses. I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs, the way he ran Apple, his vision for Apple, this was genius at that level. It really was. And, you know, it had all its consequences, et cetera. But there is this sort of such a focus on genius that you'll get guys. I mean, you know, Elon Musk was fired from PayPal. He kept trying to get PayPal to change its name to X. And, you know, (laughs) the idea that people were going to put all their money into a, a thing that, you know, an X that looked like it was an X rated movie was you know something that the other people there his partners just said absolutely not so we got fired and he had lots of issues that were challenging and this you know was able to you know put his name on on tesla um but you know a, a lot of these guys i mean you know what's happened to twitter is a perfect example of you know, just because you had a big success and everybody wrote about you and you became kind of famous and everybody thought of you as a genius at one thing doesn't mean that that's going to happen um, with something else. And and yet, you know, what happens from what uh, from my perspective is that VC more than organizations is dazzled by overconfidence, absolutely <laughs> dazzled by it and willing to endlessly fund people, you know, who have have screwed up. I mean, look at the banks with Donald Trump, for God's sake. You know, it's just problem after problem after problem and bankruptcy and pulling out of this deal and, you know, endless lawsuits and yet willing to keep funding and funding and funding. So th- this is a, a, a problematic model.
0: Mm. So it always fascinates me when there's such a glaring um, inefficiency in a market mm. that doesn't get addressed. Like you think of capitalism, like for all its flaws, it's, it's kind of like nature. Like, you yes. know, it abhors a vacuum. And, and you know, if, there's, if, there's a, if, there's, if someone can make a buck, but, you know, sort of the, the money ball perspective. Right. Like you, you know, you, oh, there's an inefficiency. Someone's going to find it. Someone's going to exploit it. And yet there's so many cases where I think like, you know, like, you know, I was in sort of food and nutrition and health for a long time thinking, what if you had an insurance company that, you know, paid for prevention rather than, you know, the million dollar, uh, open heart surgeries after the third heart attack. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't really exist. There's, there's, there's so much in place that's going to block that. And I think, like why don't a bunch of people get together, create a VC fund that really looks at, you know, money ball type numbers, like who is likely to succeed? What are the qualities of a leader? And and funds sort of quiet women who aren't into a revolution, but are just into, <laughs> right? Like there's, there's so much research about like, you know, all-star CEOs moving from one company to another and then failing. Because I think maybe this is what you're saying, because they're they're bringing their own big brand as opposed to a quieter leader who's more into like, how do we turn this institution into the best it can be rather than how do we remake it in my visionary image? image.
1: In my image. And, you know, Boris Groysberg, who's at Harvard, I think he's both in the School of Education, the School of Business, wrote, one of the most brilliant books i 've read in this uh, certainly on this topic called "Chasing Stars," where he did a long term longitudinal i think it was over ten year study of the most successful analysts on um, uh, on Wall Street and the portability of their skills because these people move around all the time they move constantly from one firm to the next, and they get a better deal here, then they get a better deal there sometimes they're to place for a couple of years. And what he found is that, in fact, their skills were not very portable. They would have a huge success at one place and then they'd get hired for a lot more money with bit, bigger bonuses, et cetera, at another place. And it wouldn't translate that the ones who stayed in place had much more success. And he said what what they underestimated was the value of the support they got at the organization that at at which they were first successful. They couldn't see Mm -hmm. that because they believed it was them. They believed it was they themselves. Now what uh, Groysberg also found was that this was not true of the small number of women who were top analysts, that they were in fact very good at assessing um, the moves they made and their skills turned out to be much more portable. There were more cases proportionately or, you know, in terms of, you know, just just their small representation of women who were able to successfully move their skills to another firm. So we wanted to find out what that was. His quantitative study wasn't revealing it. So they went and interviewed uh, the women who had done this successfully and the women who hadn't done it. And what he found was they were much more concerned with what the actual experience at the place they were going would be, you know, who they would be working with, who the leader was, what the culture was like, how it would support their uh, desire to have a satisfying and rewarding career. As opposed to just, well, it's a no-brainer. They're paying me X more, and they're going to give me a bonus of X million, which was mostly the assessment that the guys were making. So I thought that was really fascinating. So it's this whole idea of context and the desire to have a satisfying life. Now, by the way, I think this has become a much more um, widespread uh, way of thinking among men in organizations. I see that wanting to have Mm. uh, a career that's inherently rewarding rather than just one that looks fantastic on paper and pays you very well. So I think Mm. that whole discussion we're in about purpose and flourishing and all is part of that. And it's a very good sign. And I happen to think it was to some degree influenced by women.
0: Mm. Well, it's, you know, we hear a lot about you know sort of grumpy people my age complaining about the young the young people yeah. who right like yes. why don't you know nobody wants to work anymore right <laughs> exactly. which 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 from the perspective of my children is well you know, why would we work at your crappy company under your crappy leadership for crappy money like we we want more than than that from, from from our from our work we want to contribute and we want it to be meaningful and we want we want to be embedded in a in a nurturing culture as well as you know not not just sort of slogging as an individual you know waking up every day with my sword you know cutting off heads and then coming home to drag my ass into bed at night so I can get up and do it again tomorrow <laughs>
1: And this is why this younger generation is going to save us, because I think their values and, you know, their their alignment with the idea of having a satisfying life of contribution is one that's very strong. And um, really, exactly. I hear people my age all the time. Oh, they don't want to work. Oh, they're so this, they're so that, you know, they're exactly right for the environment right now. They have the skills, they have the attitude, they have the capability flourish i feel that very strongly i see it in the political arena as well Um, so i i'm fairly because the work i do exposes me to so many younger people Um, it i i'm i'm very optimistic i have to say despite all that's going on i i'm very optimistic about the future because i think they're you know they're really um on track for this and that their values really reflect what is required to build a more sustainable model of how we do organizations. And yes, we have developed a form of capitalism that is less efficient than it should be. I mean, capitalism is good at efficiency. Uh, That's why it's always been the best system. But it's distorted by things like, you know, financial reward and, um, you know, a lot of the sort of golden parachute stuff that took off. So you get you get wildly outsized rewards at the top, even when you have a failing, uh, even when the organization <laughs> is, is failing and and the people at the bottom are suffering more and more and and feeling less and less valued. So this is not an efficient way of running a capitalist organization, nor was it the classical way of doing it until. You know, really starting in the late '80s when it began to change, eh, maybe late mm. '70s. Uh, but this mm. is, you know, this is what, what we have to get out. And i I think that, I think that the imagination and the commitment of this younger generation to um, to creating again careers that are rewarding and satisfying as individuals and sustainable, and that make a contribution to the world, is is what's going to what's going to make, make this, make this work.
0: All right. Well, on that high note, I know I have to let you go in a minute. Um, Remind people where they can follow you and find you and uh, consume more of your, your ideas and content and be in touch.
1: Well, sure. And there are many resources on my website, Sally but I have been.
0: Slow down and spell that for folks who are not Uh going to read the show notes.
1: Okay sallyhelgesen.com. My last name is spelled H-E-L-G-E-S-E-N. It'll come right up if you Google me. And I've been having a great time with All Rise, which is my Substack newsletter that I started about two and a half years ago. And uh, it's really created a kind of a community around some of the issues we've been talking about, which has been deeply satisfying. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn. And and, and Twitter, although I just saw this morning I've been blocked. I have no idea what that's about, but oh, well. uh, that will get resolved. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was for doing something good.
1: I, I think it was just a tech glitch. I don't, you know, I, I tend to, but, but it may have been. <laughs> it may have been, <laughs> given where we are now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Sally Helgeson, such a pleasure as always to talk to you. I hope we can do this more and more and... Um, all Rise on Substack, com on the web. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you, Howie. I always enjoy speaking with you so much. Okay,
0: be well. All right, that's a wrap. Show notes available at plantyourself.com slash 578. So today's a rainy day. I haven't been out much. Uh, I've been playing a lot more paddle. I think I'm getting the hang of lobs, which is kind of fun because they're... Uh, you know, a great strategy if you can get them real close to the wall. It's very hard for people to swing their paddles uh, well enough when it's very close to the glass. So I'm I'm working on that. And also working with my trainer, Jay, on building stamina. He went to the beach the other day, and I'm running in a direction, and then he barks out a 90-degree turn left or right, and I go do it and dig my feet in the sand. And it's starting to pay off, according to my friend Miguel at uh, Ultimate. I'm running faster and better than I was when he first met me, so yay. Uh, this week is Carnival Week. If you want to look it up, SITGES, S-I-T-G-E-S, Carnaval. It's, it's spelled with three A's, but if you put in Carnival, I'm sure you'll get there too. You can watch some of the festivities, the debauchery parade, the uh, extermination parade, and apparently uh, later on this week, they're going to uh, bury an effigy of a sardine. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, surviving all the, all the noise and firecrackers and feathers and parades. And uh, maybe I'll get some photos up or uh, post some, uh, some, some homemade movies to YouTube so you can enjoy it as well. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Berenst, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Serk, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Anne Jessie, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Byrd, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Patti Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill elf Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.